Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How's it going? Did anything terrible happen in your town this week? I mean, you know what? I saw something like 324 people wearing cowboy hats tonight, women, and all but two were wearing the exact same thing. Uh, One person was wearing a dress that was different. Another person was wearing a baggy T-shirt that was different. But everybody else was wearing the exact same thing. That that was really weird. (laughs) So I I would put that down as bad. Not not enough creativity. Yeah, I mean, that is terrible. Very, very strange. I'm curious about the cults in Quebec City at this point because of that. But I want you to know that it's probably Olivia Chow's fault. Oh, uh, I, mm, I don't know. Country music? Is that Olivia Chow's fault? Maybe. I guess so. I don't know. If, like, the news um, back home, and not the news, I don't mean, like, the news. I'm talking about, like, that Twitter news. I, there's been some, you know, very awful events that have happened in Toronto, and there's, like, this this chorus of people online who've clearly been <laughs> readied to, to campaign against uh, Olivia Chow no matter what, who are just like, this is Olivia Chow's Toronto. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, already. Which, you know, of course, <laughs> of course, she's been uh, elected as the new mayor, but she doesn't start till this week, but... Uh, anyway, uh, a bunch of people, including former candidates like Anthony Fury, are are really, really insistent that these things are uh, a result of Olivia Chow's Toronto and not not John Tory's Toronto, because, I mean, this is still his Toronto. And I don't know. I just, <laughs> yeah, people suck, man. People do suck. But you know what doesn't suck, Sandy? Mm, us? <laughs> yeah, us and summer and talking politics and trying to change the way that we, you and I, we collectively talk about things. Because I think the one thing that has been very, very clear to me in the last couple of weeks, uh, specifically, and we'll, we'll talk about this tonight, but not specifically about this, but the the way that we create spaces to have discussions and refine our ideas and refine our arguments is so critical. And when you don't have that, you end up with a weird situation like we have right now where the peace movement in this country, the anti-war movement in this country, nascent, trying to get its stuff together, is just shut down, hit down, slapped around, told to go to hell, called genocide deniers, called warmongers every step of the way. And that's why we need to create these kinds of spaces so that we can sharpen our arguments, create community and feel confidence in the arguments that we uh, are, are, are drawn to that, uh, that we develop and think are great. So I, I mean, I think that's great. Yeah. I've been sort of watching some of the responses to you lately online in particular and some other folks online and how any sort of like um, anti-war stance that's that that you know is uh, critical of like the players in what's happening in Ukraine uh, gets like people are being called uh, Putin apologists and so on and it's it's really it's kind of bizarre to watch because I feel like we've we've done like a really quick loop at the beginning of this uh, when Russia, um, it, you know, the, the the most recent invasion, you know, there was like this this strange um, sort of what felt like a hurrah for war um, uh, by a lot of people um, who 
you know, identify themselves as being against Putin. But the, the way I was, of expressing that was like this sort of hurrah for war. And I and then, it, you know, about a year um, goes by and it seemed like people were um uh, becoming more sober on it and starting to understand that perhaps there's an anti-war position that can be taken that is a little bit more critical. And now, I don't know, I'm starting to see like the evidence of like a really concerted efforts um, uh, to to campaign to get us back to that place mm-hmm, online. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't do anybody good. And so as you said, um, you know, what's good talking politics? I don't know, not all the time. Sometimes talking politics suck. <laughs> so, but it's definitely good to have places where you can have some critical discussion. That's for sure. Totally, totally. And you know what? We've got some gratitude too. Hey, I love that. Let's give out some gratitude. (laughs) Yes. So thank you to everybody who liked and shared the podcast this past weekend, who engaged with the podcast at all. Especially thank you to Mac, Jean-Paul, and Emily. You guys are awesome. We love you. And also... Ben, great suggestion for us to reignite the Discord server. We have a Discord. I have to figure out how to like mass invite people to it because, you know, the links change, but I'm going to do what I can. Let's try to get the Discord server coming back because I don't know if you've seen it, Sandy, but social media this past week has been kind of like, feels like it's like on the rocks. (laughs) Well, I mean, there's threads. Threads has popped up. There's a there's a, a Twitter killer called Threads um, that's out there. <laughs> Isn't that like a clothing de- like designer or something? I don't know. I, I I definitely got one though. I almost got Sandy and Nora one, and then I saw your tweet that was just like, <laughs> "I'm not giving more of myself to Zuckerberg," and I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> you could have given some of myself for me. <laughs> Sure. I mean, to me, um, you know, they're all the same. So if if we're doing one, we're doing them all. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not I'm not threading on there um, in in any greater way than I'm tweeting on Twitter. <laughs> so I'm just I'm just there to lurk. Um, but uh, but there it is. That happened uh, on the social medias this week. And yeah, I mean, social media is, is definitely falling apart. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, we've been watching this happen for, for a while. Have we not? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we also had this uh, weird rate limited issue about a week ago on Twitter where it wasn't sure that we'd be allowed to tweet more than some number of tweets per day or even look at some number of tweets per day. That seems to have been ironed out. But yeah, it does seem like it's a lot less fun on Twitter. And I've been like very much wondering, like, did I change or am I the exact same person and the platform has changed? I I remember back when like the best thing in the world is having like a to the jugular argument on Facebook. And that seems like so far in the past that it's like Facebook isn't that at all anymore. And now Twitter is like just the most syphilitic trolls (laughs) always on my ass. And it's like, hmm, this isn't fun either. What the fuck? Well, no, the platform has definitely changed. I mean, I know that I certainly did change, and that's part of how I stopped like interacting as much on Twitter is because I started to think really deeply about what the interaction means, and then I couldn't square it with myself. But the the the, the platform has definitely changed. I mean, like I I get now far more. Um, notifications about DMs than I ever have. And (laughs) 
I mean, it's all Bitcoin and porn, it seems like. So I don't really understand what the heck is happening there. And anything that is remotely interesting that comes up that is like, oh, gosh, like this seems like a really serious thing um, that I should know more about if I click on it guaranteed I have to scroll until, you know, I get some sort of whatever the thumb equivalent of carpal tunnel is in my thumb uh, in order to get to any sort of responses that are useful because the first few responses are always going to be these people who have paid for a blue check so they can be first up. And those responses tend to be really, really ugly. And when there's so much that's happening in the world right now that is um, really impacting particularly marginalized communities, it's like, God, I don't want to fucking see that shit, actually. I don't want I don't want manosphere response uh, to to what's happening um, with respect to 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 like anything. So, no. Yeah, I've gone in the in the habit of scrolling like four solid fast scrolls through any replies just so I get past the blue checks. And what I find so fascinating is that like in a lot of the tweets that I think are really funny or really insightful, that they're not necessarily super political, uh, it doesn't take very long to get past the blue checks, right? It's it, it, like there's average people are there pretty quickly and it's like, okay, I'm here for this content. But then you go to a story like the one that CTV News reported this past weekend, which is that um, in some part of Germany, for the first time since World War II, a far-right municipal council has become elected or far-right mayor or something like this. So for for the first time since the Nazis were in power, they're seeing a resurgence of the far-right. And the replies were all blue checks. They were all fucking denying that this far-right thing is even close to Nazism, which was like... Whoa, 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 up is down. What the fuck is going on? And I tried to scroll past all this stuff to see how average people were engaging with this. And it took a long time. So it is very interesting to see what are the tweets that have like the hundreds and hundreds of blue check replies and what are the tweets that have like maybe a dozen blue check replies and uh, how much... Twitter has had to actively encourage the far right on this platform because I think a lot of us have seen over the years that it is a it's a place that if the if the general balance of the universe is operating correctly, it tends to be a more left wing place because it's just more average people being able to talk about their own average issues. So that's going to express left wing politics more than right wing politics. So that was a pretty interesting reminding reminder. And um, it was pretty just despairing to see uh, how many people were like insisting that nazism is actually socialism oh including actually an old tweet from someone who had a makeover this past weekend apparently pierre Pauly ever thinks that nazism is 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 socialism as well was that pierre Pauly ever or was it like some version of superman like this guy without glasses <laughs> who's appeared on our screen who is that yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's just say that uh, he's fallen into a big bin of CrossFit and is now officially a CrossFit bro. Wait, actually? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. But if you look at his arms, he's either doing steroids or he's on CrossFit or he's on CrossFit and steroids. But he's definitely going for something. And I know the exact kind of guy that he's going for. And I have to say that even though he looks like Milhouse even more... Uh, I think it's unfortunately uh, effective. Oh, wait. You, you, didn't, you didn't allow that to live. 
as long <laughs> as it needed to. You should you say it again. Give it a pause. You need to let that live. That was a, that was a good one. I liked it. Well, his, I, like it's it's one thing for him to look like Milhouse, as we all know Milhouse to look like. But if you go to any of the episodes where he takes off his glasses and his tiny little eyes blink, it's like holy shit. Okay, that is Pierre Paul ever. He's got <laughs> tiny little eyes and and big oh crossfit mid 40 year old guy trying to still look hot kind of arms oh god that's really <laughs> this is awful it's, it's bad, bad. <laughs> it's oh awful. god he looks so weird sorry i just <laughs> looked him up again as we we're discussing he just i i can't i'm sorry i don't know what's going on here it's um it's something it's really it's something. bad it, it, I mean, I'm trying to think of like what would be the equivalent. I, you know, I guess back when Trudeau um, was doing his Three Musketeers look, like that was pretty hilarious. But he wasn't he wasn't even the leader of the Liberal Party at that point. Um, but uh, for a for a leader of a party to to go that far into the aesthetics to try and make his face look so different, and and for someone who's literally only been a politician his entire existence, like his his look has been something that he's been cultivating his entire life. Uh, it's pretty jarring, and he looks. And I think it's fine to talk about people's looks. <laughs> I have to say, like I, I think ta- I think I think talking about the way that someone's presenting themselves is really interesting from a political perspective. And I think he looks like um, he looks like shit. He looks really freaky, and I don't like looking at him. <laughs> um, interesting. Well, I think that I mean maybe one of the th- if I was if I was to imagine myself as as like a conservative strategist and trying to figure out why why is this a priority i mean i think if they're looking into um you know competing against either justin trudeau or um christian freeland or whomever it's going to be and and the who's going to lead the liberals in the next time around that maybe what they're trying to do is present Pierre Polyev as like the answer to Justin Trudeau, like in the way mm. that around the world, Justin Trudeau got all of this, um, this press for being like Canada's hot, young. Ugh, I can't even say it. It's Barf. just so gross. It really <laughs> you know? is so gross. <laughs> Feminist, you know, whatever that he is. He is like the answer to that in some way, you know, like in the same way that they did to with Macron as well, like trying to. Yeah to capitalize on that. But I, yeah, I don't know. Millhouse. It's a, it's a look, I suppose in the same way that Justin Trudeau's nothing face is a look because I, I never understood that either. Mm, yeah. Now I think what it does bear mentioning is that the conservative party knows that Polly is not popular. Like he has not managed to break into any significant territories in Canada that are any different than he's already had. And so in polls, I mean, he's not he's not pulling ahead in any significant way. And that's specifically true in Quebec, where Paul Ever's brand of conservatism is not going to fly here. It has to be very different if you're going to attract voters en masse in this province. And the bloc is still very, very strong. The bloc is also led by this beefy guy who used to be the manager of a famous singer in this province. So um, the like, I don't know if the Conservative Party thinks that a makeover is going to be what does it for Polly Ever, but like it's the politics, folks. It's his actual fucking politics. And unless you figure out a way to moderate this completely extremist fucking freak, uh, it's going to be it's going to be a failure. And I also just want to say, Sandy, I have a new prediction of who the next liberal leader is going to be. Ooh, do tell. I think it's going to be Anita Anand. Really? Yeah, really. I mean, isn't isn't it obvious? So here you have 
the the woman who is leading Canada's war effort. She led Canada's pandemic effort when she was Minister of Procurement. She just had this big viral video because she met uh, this BBC presenter whose name is also Anita Anand. And they're all like, oh, my God, we have the same name. And I think that she has everything that the liberals want. She's from the 905 in, in, in Toronto, which, I mean, that's like, as they would say, vote rich, the vote rich 905 in the golden horseshoe for the Liberal Party of Canada. And um, and she seems like actually capable, right? Which I don't know if we can say about Melanie Jolie or even Freeland in terms of how she ever <laughs> responds to anything. <laughs> so that's my big guess. That's my big uh, uh, hypothesis. And you're welcome to have it, uh, too, if, you, if you've been swayed by that little spiel. No, no, I'm not. I, I still think it's Melanie Jolie. If I'm, if I'm guessing today, it's Melanie Jolie. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I saw, I mean, I didn't click on this news, uh, but I, I did see that there was something announced this week about um, uh, protections that Melanie Jolie was announcing for Canadian mortgage holders as the interest rates go up. And to me, that's like, oh, okay, they really want to protect this, uh, protect her as things might be getting tough for the, the average liberal voter. So mm. uh, that I don't know. I'm still thinking Melanie Jolie, but I I I, I hear your argument on an end. It's interesting, um, and we shall see. I love it, Sandy. Nor listeners, you know what? You take sides. You take sides, and as this evolves, <laughs> and I mean, you know what? Christian Freeland is still there as an option. True. <laughs> you gotta look. You gotta look carefully though, and down if she's not wearing her heels. Oh my god. <laughs> well, because she's like super short, right? She's like four foot one or something. Oh, jeez. No, I don't know. I just you know, made that you up. Know, <laughs> you're, t- I, I know that you made this that up. I, the odd oh, jeez wasn't a, oh, man, she's short. It was like, a, oh, Nora, here she goes. <laughs> 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 but uh, what'll be interesting, if it is uh, Christian Freeland, is what then happens with respect to Ukraine mm. if Trump wins. Right. Or the Republicans. <laughs> Or, I mean, well, it depends on which Republican, because I think there are some Republicans who are less interested in, you know, being Putin's bestie um, than Trump. True. And we can talk about this. But one piece of news that came out this past week is that NATO is feeling under pressure because they're afraid that the Republicans might win and it'll change everything. Uh, Not just if they're super close to Putin or not, but just that there's the Republicans have been a little bit like cooler to the international empire expanding, uh, certainly under Trump. But I kind of don't think any of his opponents would be all that different. Uh, I don't know. Uh, p- potentially, Pence might want to continue the same sort of like uh, wars help uh, help distract from things that are happening. Um, True. Uh, domestically, like who knows? But also, Pence probably doesn't have a hope. He's got a um, prayer. But before we get there, can I just... He's got a prayer. <laughs> <laughs> He does. He probably has thoughts and prayers. Um, uh, if if I could say one thing before we we get on to, to this topic, yeah, of course. Um, the 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 numbers that we spent on the submersible that Canada spent on the submersible search they've come out now. Do you know how much? Two. Yeah, ish, 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 ish. They haven't come out. This CTV has done a bit of an estimate. So we don't know the total amount, but this is definitely on the lower side of what it's going to be. Okay, yes. This is the at least. Yes. This is the at least. The floor. The, the ocean floor. The floor is that it cost $2.4 million 
to deploy a single Canadian aircraft to search for the imploded submersible. Yeah. 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 And that's RCAF, right? So again, military funding, Anita Nand, doing her duty. Um, if we're not patrolling the Baltic, if we're not patrolling the Strait of Taiwan, we are sending sono buoys into the ocean to look for an already exploded sub. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting how Canada um, can, you know, at the drop of a hat, decide to to do such a search for people who, um, you know, like this, this, these people have nothing to do with Canada, but we, we have the money and it's, it's right there to be able to spend to do this sort of search. And hmm, I don't know, have, has Canada been asked to do searches similarly domestically that it's just dropped that sort of money on, Nora? Hmm. Well, uh, certainly people were very, very quick to compare this to the lack of urgency coming from the federal government to search the Brady Road landfill in Winnipeg. And it's believed that there is at least one woman's body who is in that landfill. Uh, Many people are worried that there might be more and have been calling now consistently on the federal government to pay the money that it will take. Of course, it'll take money to do a search like this to do the search. And Canada has been cool to those calls. Yeah, and in a in a uh, truth and reconciliation um, uh, propagandists as the government are, um, like it, it's like how can they justify such a thing given what they are willing to do um, for these billionaires who uh, you know like I'm assuming their families could pay for this type of search on their their own, and you know Canada has no no reason to do that. Um, and so, again, like if Canada is spending that sort of money and that's the floor, that is, of course, our money. That's public money. And I, I don't know. It just seems pretty friggin disgusting. And just like an, uh, another way that uh, proves how, you know, every single time we as uh, average people call on something to be done or call on the government to do something and they're like, there's no money or we have to come up with a plan or we have to research or we have to blah, 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 whatever it is. And they never actually get to the point because it never actually ends up into the budget. It's just a decision that they're making to deprioritize something. And this is one of these times um, that that is proven. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it's really important, too, because I saw people talking about this online, like Canada is signatory to international conventions on the law of the sea, where we engage in search and rescue missions when called on. And while the Titan submersible uh, had nothing much to do with Canada, the launch ship is a Canadian ship. So there's also a Transportation Safety Board uh, investigation that's on right now because it, it's, a, it's a ship flying under a Canadian flag. But this, uh, you know, Sandy, when I was reading this this news at CTV last week, I was really thinking about what you were talking about last episode, where you were saying that the whole thing was done to look like a movie, right? Where it was like, ooh, these people are probably not alive. Oh, there's some hope. Oh, the oxygen's there. Oh, we can still save them. Canada launched the, the Aurora uh, rescue aircraft the night of the day that it was pretty clear uh, that they were dead. Uh, that that morning was when the U.S. Navy reported uh, some sort of sonar, sonic anomaly, which was probably the implosion of the Titanic uh, searching submersible. But okay, so fine. That night, Canada starts a search and rescue mission. Okay, maybe maybe for twelve hours, uh, maybe. But they continued for three days, dropping s- these uh, sonobuoys, trying to get. Uh, 
uh, evidence that there was some sort of missing submersible, even though all of the evidence by the end, by, by the, certainly by the second day and absolutely, absolutely by the third day was that this thing didn't exist anymore. So, you know, Canada engaged in this international charade at the cost of $2.4 million. That's very, very low. It's likely closer to $3 million because that's just the cost of the Aurora um, and how long it operated for. So, like, Christ, folks, like, we were played, our money was just thrown to something to give people fake hope and to make people think that this was possible, and it never was possible. And all of the experts were saying at the time it wasn't possible, and we were like, fuck it, we're going to search for it anyway. Yeah, it's terrible. And so now I think we should talk a little bit about what's going on in Ukraine as um, we are marking, uh, you know, 500 days of of this uh, of this war that's been going on, and in particular, like there's this there's this piece of news that I know that you want to um, discuss. Um, it is the front of CBC News right now. It says new defense spending goals. This article talks about uh, the the NATO uh, expectation that governments uh, that member states contribute two percent of defense spending to uh, to to NATO. And I don't know. What do you think about that, Nora? Well, do they say that this is like the same issue that has come up year over year over year over year going way back to when Stephen Harper was prime minister? Because it is not news. Mm. No, it definitely seems like it's a brand new issue. <laughs> it is, like I said, the, the the first thing, like if you go to CBC, if you're, it is Sunday night, it is July the 9th. If you go to CBC right now, CBC News, it's the, it's the number one news story. Uh, new defense spending goals. Yeah. Okay. So every time NATO meets, NATO tries to get all of its member states to commit to spending 2% of its GDP on military. And every single time Canada's like, we're not going to do that. We can't do that. We don't want to do that. We don't have the capacity to do that. We're not doing that. And as I say, this goes back to under Harper. And I'm sure I even had this rant on this on this podcast probably twice because, fuck, we've been at it for a couple of years now. <laughs> but journalists are always rehashing this like we've never heard of this 2 percent spending. Oh, my God, Canada's Canada's letting down its NATO partners and Canada's not meeting its spending obligations and all this bullshit. And it's very clear that the, that the media establishment has, is always working in favor of the arms industry trying to get that 2 percent uh, number hit. Now, in the article. Sandy, do they say we're actually going to finally do 2% of the spending or are they just like, it's a call because NATO is meeting next week and this is a perennial issue? <laughs> I I think it's the latter. It talks about in the article that uh, that this is something that uh, the, that uh, in Can- Canada agreed to try to do in the 2014 NATO summit was to try to work towards 2%. <laughs> it also says that currently Canada spends 1.29%. And then it says, uh, which I'm sure you'll, you'll love this quote, that uh, the Washington Post quoted leaked Pentagon documents um, last spring where Trudeau yes. whispered that Canada was is not planning on meeting the 2%. Yes, yes. And that got reported as, oh, my gosh, Canada's in these new uh, Washington Post papers. And it's Justin Trudeau being 
um, very secretive that we're not meeting the we're not meeting it. We're not meeting the target. Like at this point, it would be equivalent of throwing money at the armed forces and being like, well, just, uh, you know, why don't you guys all just uh, triple your salaries? Because it's like we, we don't we don't have like they can't even purchase any of the of the aircraft they want to purchase. This takes forever to purchase any of the, any of the helicopters, any of the boats like. This is ridiculous, and it is all in the service of trying to tell Canadians that that not only is this good, that NATO itself is good, and that NATO's obligations are good, that it is good for Canada to be working towards 2%, and we should be at 2%, but it is also important to tell us that we are engaged in war, and our war contributions have to meet shoulder to shoulder with all the other nations alongside who we are at war with. Except we're not at war. Like, this is, it's just so, so ridiculous. It's like, it feels like Canada's, like, in the schoolyard and Ukraine is getting its ass kicked by Russia. And Canada's like, yeah, we got your back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Ukraine's like, oh, okay, really? And Canada's like, sure, yeah, sure we do. Keep going. Oh, you got kicked again. Oh, shit. Here, here, we'll send you a slingshot. Oh, you got kicked down again. Oh, no. You know, it's just like, we're not actually there. We don't actually have skin in the game at all. Uh, other than the drive of like the largest Ukrainian population outside of Ukraine in the world. And so this is just politics for the fucking Liberal Party. It's just politics for any political party. And it's um, really sick. It's really, really, really gross because at the end of the day, people are dying. Yeah, at the end of the day, people are dying. And so I think that that brings us just generally to uh, what I had brought up before, but just like what the sort of public discussion has been on the war and what's going on right now. So if you have been seeing the news this week, you've probably seen um, that the the U.S. has agreed to provide cluster munitions to uh, to Ukraine and that uh, this the cluster bombs, these types of bombs uh, have been banned in a lot of countries because of how uh, awful they are and what they do to people. They, and I'm just reading this off of like Wikipedia right now uh, to explain it. Uh, it's a, it's a form of explosive weapon that releases or ejects smaller sub munitions. So it ejects other little bombs that are um, designed to of course, carry forward and kill other people. And sometimes those other smaller bombs don't explode right away, which, of course, as you can imagine, uh, poses a huge, huge danger to civilians, um, especially if you're fighting in areas that might be at some point civilian, um, that, that where civilians might uh, be uh, around or using later on after troops have left. And so, of course, um, this is a really big deal. This is really awful. I mean, um, the UN has policies against uh, cluster munitions as well. The U.S. providing um, these these uh, these types of weapons has, you know, like the Biden providing them. It's been endorsed by by uh, top Republicans as well. So this is like something that um, will... Uh, somewhat perhaps dictate how the Republicans, depending on who gets into power, uh, if Biden doesn't win the the election, if this war continues, you know, like that the U.S. will probably uh, continue to support this sort of thing. And so 
when when this sort of thing is happening, when we're starting to our side, like who Canada is supporting um, in the war, is starting to use these types of uh, explosives that you know, like are we know are morally awful. Like what 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 does that mean for our discourse on this issue? Yeah, well, and not to mention, if you say anything that uh, cluster munitions are bad and should not be sent to Ukraine online, you get a lot of people replying to you saying that you're pro-Putin, which I think is really fascinating. Like, let's think about the United States sending Ukraine cluster munitions. First of all, cluster munitions have been used by Russia from the start, and they've been used by Ukraine. There's been evidence of both. I've, I, I'm really struggling to remember if I've written about this or if I talked about it on the podcast before. But I, I, I researched this and saw that, like, you know, there are, you know, as you say, Russia, United States, not signatories to uh, convention saying that they, that they will not be used. But these are going to be left in Ukrainian territory. And as you say, they'll be left for a long time. And sometimes the, the munitions, like they don't look necessarily like munitions and children touch them. And this is something that we know happens in other parts of the world where there is war. And so even if Ukraine is using them against Russia, it's still in Ukrainian territory. It's still going to hurt Ukrainians. You know, like, like I get that people are getting desperate at this point, at day 500 and whatever. But to reach to these munitions because the United States doesn't have the, the kind of munitions that, that Ukraine has asked for. This has been a a, a, a a way to say, oh, we don't have what you're looking for, but you know what? We'll send you cluster munitions. It's so bad. And it's such a long-term devastating munition and weapon that it's like, okay, <laughs> like, okay, United States, is, is that a good idea? While at the same time, they're saying that they're going to send these things. We also just found out last week that the United States has been engaging in something called track two or track 1.5 diplomacy, whereas where senior officials from the from the State Department and from other uh, like other high ranking officials, in the United States have been secretly meeting with Russian officials to try and and get to Putin to say, like, please stop this. What's it going to take to stop this? How can we come up with a diplomatic solution here? that will end your invasion. Um, and even then I saw people uh, saying like, well, that's just that's just disgusting because you, Ukraine has to be in part of all of the discussions about what the terms will be of surrender or what the terms will be, will be of diplomacy or whatever. And it's like, yeah, the United States is meeting with Ukraine too, folks. Like this is this is actually really good news that the United States still has back channels to Russia to try and convince them to stop their invasion. And I, I find it really fascinating I don't know, weird and funny and non-funny kind of way that people are turning that into Putin propaganda as well. So here we've got the United States that's like really in engaged, as we all know, and trying to figure out like how their engagement goes forward as this thing drags on, as the death toll mounts. And we don't even know what it is, right? There's not really any good public numbers on what the death toll has been so far. And uh, and it seems like the only track for for a certain kind of thinking is it's like, all or nothing. We're fighting to save everything in Ukraine and we're willing to just die for it. And it's like, but you are like, there is deaths. Like there, this is not going to, that's just, that's just protracted war, which doesn't serve anybody. No. And so for, for those of you who have seen this news, some of you may have seen that Canada did put out a statement um, uh, confirming that it is against the use of, of uh, cluster munitions and that it is compliant with the convention and takes seriously its obligation. But 
um, being critical of something like that, we should be thinking about how many billions of dollars our government has uh, committed to this war and what that leads to in the end, <laughs> like what it will obviously lead to, you know, like this is, uh, you know, Russia is a nuclear power. And uh, if, you know, if, if this is going to continue to go on the way that it's going on, it's going to mean death and destruction for many, many Ukrainians. And I mean, like, so if, if that is, if you come into this discourse thinking, gosh, like um, the Ukrainian people deserve some sort of support, some reprieve, like this is disgusting, then I, I just, I just don't see how people don't understand like the anti-war position being the only, um, the only ethical position. Uh, because, you know, as we've said on this podcast several times before, and from the very beginning, if you want to understand um, you know, like the, what the what the principled position is in in a in a in a conflict like this. You think about the people and like what is going to happen to average people, or what is happening. I mean, this is the thing, right? Like we know that if Russia is entering this as scorched earth, as they want to make these territories as miserable and as destroyed as possible. You can't respond to that with more firepower because then you just give Russia what they want. Like, I mean, that's 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 what happens here. And I think that one of the reasons for why it's so difficult to uh, conceptualize these things is because we're not actually allowed to talk about them. You know, there is there's very clearly been uh, a refusal to allow any kind of critical conversations about what is happening in Ukraine. Of course, there are professors, academics that study this stuff that are able to talk um, more with more nuance and with more knowledge and be able to, uh, of, the, of both the history and of the, of the current situation of what the possibilities might be going forward. And there is still that, which is wonderful and important. But in mainstream media, like you really can't talk about um, an anti-war position at all. And I don't know if you saw this, Sandy, but like the Heritage Festival in Edmonton just canceled the Russian booth because they were receiving threats that if they went ahead to have the Russian booth and multicultural heritage festival or whatever, that there would be violence. It's just like, this seems bad. Oh, uh, the, like the, the Russian government runs the booth? Yeah. Putin himself was supposed to be present. Huh. Because <laughs> that doesn't make sense. <laughs> it just... Gosh, I just, I, did, did we not, I, I remember taking history in school. I remember it being mandatory. I remember learning many lessons, um, one of which was like about how, uh, you know, the wars are, are, are generally not connected to like what, like the people and who the people are. Like it, it's generally has something to do with like people in power and, um, you know, whatever uh, class-based or geopolitical issue is happening there, and it 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 doesn't have to do with who the people are and like uh, and how people should respond to, you know, who people are as you know as their ethnicity. Mm. And I, <laughs> um, that seems like I don't know. Is there no is there no history classes <laughs> in Edmonton? I don't, is that what you're telling me? That's the, the conclusion I've come up with. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's also just a, a, a period of time where the last two weeks, uh, Dimitri Lascaris, he's been doing a national tour talking about what he thinks uh, needs to happen uh, to create peace in Ukraine and a lot of people disagree with him, but a lot of his events have been canceled under threats of violence as well. So it's like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, okay, fine. You want to threaten people with violence? It's like, sure, we can we can do violence in Canada if that's how people want to police the ability of anybody to be critical of what's going on there. But like, let's be serious about that then. Let's be clear about what's happening. And um, there's been a very weird push online to try and make the anti-war position on Ukraine be a position that is pro-genocide and pro-Putin and pro-war. <laughs> it's so stupid when you say it like that, but that's what people are trying to do. People are I've seen a lot of people trying to argue that it is it is the actually the fascist position is the anti-war position. Have you seen any of this, Sandy? I have. I've seen it. I've I've seen it. I've scrolled past it. There's a lot of people, though, with blue check marks, too. So, you yeah. know, maybe that's saying something. Well, I, you know what? I have been wondering how much of the blue checkmark uh, world is actually connected to this coordinated thing called NAFO, which is um, a really beyond idiotic meme uh, war, online meme war that has been like the way that a multilinguistic world can come together and support Ukraine. But okay, very- so wait, you have to explain this one to me because I have seen this online, but it just seemed like like some sort of like weird satire that I should just scroll past and ignore. Are you telling me this is worth understanding in some way? It is very necessary to understand it because it has leaked into mainstream politics. And so last week, the president of Estonia made a video saying that she was so sad that she wasn't going to be able to get to NAFO's first in-person conference as an honorary fella. Everybody in NAFO is a fella, which is like red motherfucking flag. That's a red flag. Okay, folks, it's a red flag. It doesn't matter what NAFO is for. If they're all fellas, if you've been on the Internet for more than fucking five years, you know that is a red flag. Anyway, but she's like, you know, I'm so so but you but you people have been the reason that the war is blah blah blah. Like we we need you. So it is it, it, the the idea behind it. Wait, I don't understand. Like actual politicians are responding to this to this yes. satire? I thought it was a joke. It is a joke. You just called them fellas. Yeah. No, they call themselves <laughs> fellas. And it's like I literally want to punch every single person in the, wor- in the face in the world that calls himself a fellow, like in general, like before this, before this was a thing. This, this, is, not, this is not an opinion I have because of NAFO. It's like, fella? Like, what the fuck? Like, you can say fellow, but fella? Anyway. So, and they all have the dog, they, they all have doggo imagery, and it's like supposed to be cutesy. And as you say, lots and lots of them have blue check marks. And so I think that they're probably the first, they're probably the first propaganda wing that has benefited the most from the new Twitter and from the policies of Elon Musk, which is also very interesting that I am sure that there are some academics out there studying. I hope, I hope, I hope. But I think what is so interesting about NAFO is, Sandy, if I was going to say to you, what kind of person founded this little movement? What kind of person would be the kind of person to found NAFO, calling themselves fellas and bonking people and coming after critics in the most annoying way possible? What do you think he espouses? What do you, what do you, how, what do you think he thinks about Jewish people? Let's say that. Oh yeah. I would say, um, my guess on that anti-Semitism, uh, spectrum would be uh, like highly off the charts. Yes. Yeah. That's where I would be. Yeah, it's an American who uh, has on social media praised Hitler and praised the Nazis and is a raging anti-Semite. 
So, oh my God, wait. And so, sorry, like actual politicians are responding to this thing? Well, because not everybody, it's very loose. So not everybody knows who the founder is or who the main guy was at some point. It's taken its own life. I think that if you surveyed like Canadians who were really into posting through NAFO that they necessarily wouldn't know, that they wouldn't necessarily know that the guy that started off was a raging piece of shit. But no, 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 no. Sorry. Oh, I'm to benefit the doubt. In 2023 on the internet, you have to be better at propaganda. You you may not understand it that way or call it that, but you need to be better at understanding like where things are coming from and how they were started and what purpose they serve, especially if you are a politician. So that, I mean, you're that's a, a huge benefit of the doubt there that you're giving, like <laughs> that I know you probably don't agree with. No, no, but I think it's really interesting because here we have... Um, one of the biggest Russian talking points was like their invasion was the denazification of Ukraine, which I think on, you know, probably seven or 10 different measures we can tell is complete bullshit, right? The totalitarianism of Russia and of Putin is, you know, the ethno-nationalism of Putin, of his political project, all of these things. I think we can look at and say, you are not invading Ukraine because of Nazism. Like, get the fuck out of here. That's bullshit. However, as we have said on this podcast before, there is still very strong fascist tendencies within, uh, well, certainly the Ukrainian military, um, of co- Ukraine's at war. So, of course, there's going to be a rise of extremist positions uh, taken by, by certain people. Like, that's that's normal. And that's not a Ukrainian, pro- like, specifically Ukrainian problem. That's going to happen anytime you have a, a conflict like this. But here we have also now, like, the entire posting thing goes down, goes down, goes back to this one guy who's, like, a fascist. It's like, this is just kind of too, just keeps happening. <laughs> like, what the f- why does this keep happening? This is so weird. And I'm going to suggest why it keeps happening. Because what's happening in Ukraine is about global forces and power shifting. Every time you hear Christia Freeland or other people, I've seen a couple of other people make these comments, like high-ranking high politicians make these comments. What's happening in Ukraine is they're seeing this as a fight against the West, against democracy, against the shining city on the hill, the way that I've literally heard Freeland say that twice in a speech, uh, in two speeches before. And that this is an existential threat to the West as the American hegemony is collapsing and we're seeing it collapse. And so, of course, you're going to have these really weird extremes in, in different tendencies all, all over the discussion and all over in the discourse. And uh, as people are grasping to save what they consider to be Western democracy or Western civilization, like there's obviously there's fascism woven deeply into all of that. So, of course, it's going to become exposed. Of course, of course, of course. And to pe- to 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 shield themselves then you have this really fucked up, oh, well, communism and the Nazis are the same thing. And it's like, under no historical measure can you make that as a serious claim. These are not the same political tendencies at the fuck all, and in fact are the opposite ends of what people, like, of the political spectrum, all in the service of making the center, all in the service of making liberalism look enlightened and look like the right thing and and worth dying for and worth refusing to cede anything to. And that, you know what, yeah, it's like the casualties are horrible and the cluster munitions are horrible and maybe we'll be at nuclear war, but this is just enough for us to go forward with this from the people in power. I mean, average people, of course, are not necessarily making the same decisions. And so I think that that's, that's where we have to keep our eye. Who knows, Nora, maybe soon we'll also start hearing that this is a just war, a war to perhaps end all wars. <laughs> oh, my God. I... Uh...